Good morning. Today's reading is from Colossians 1, 24 through 2, 5. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Whoa. Uh, I'm Pastor Joey. It's, uh, I'm excited to uh, be standing in front of you this morning, ready to go, sort of ready to go. Uh, last night I found myself um, with no answers within myself, uh, in pure desperation, turning where everyone turns for answers to Google, and typing into the search bar, what's the secret to finding my lost files? <laughs> you know where this is going. It's not the first time it's happened to me. I uh, pulled up the Word document that included this morning's sermon in it, and it was gone. It was empty. So, uh, you know, usually Saturday nights you put the final polish on things as you're getting ready to teach the next day. It's hard to polish something that's not there. Uh, so what we have this morning is something unpolished, unedited, unillustrated, and probably not much fun, but we're going to do it anyway. Because why not? I typed into Google, what's the secret to finding my lost files? Because I was hoping that, that if, I, if I just tapped into the right higher power, I would be granted access into areas of my computer that I hadn't been before, where perhaps were hidden secret treasure troves of knowledge and information that I had previously entrusted there. Well, I was let down. Google had no answers. And I guess at the risk of turning uh, one malfunctioning computer into a metaphor for life, aren't we all searching for the secret? Uh, in seriousness, I think we do all come to life with this sense that things aren't the way they're supposed to be, and there must be some way to get over whatever this thing is that I'm experiencing that tells me it's not supposed to be this way. If you type into Google, what's the secret to... It's interesting what is auto-filled there for you to click on. What's the secret to happiness? What's the secret to success? What's the secret to life, to love, to happiness, to southern charm? My favorite, what's the secret to hummingbird cake? 
I don't know what hummingbird cake is, but apparently it's a book. It's not actually a cake. I was disappointed when I clicked on that one. Oh, it is a cake? What is it? Somebody tell me afterwards or make me one. Even better. <laughs> What's the secret? Looking for the killer secret solution, the, the formula that we don't know, but maybe if we had it and could just work it would get us where we want to be. It, it turns out that that's not just a modern endeavor. It's actually an ancient, centuries-old, millennia-old habit of humanity to go looking for the secret that we think is going to take us from where we are to where we want to be, where we feel we are meant to be. There's actually a, a secret, a hidden truth, or a special formula that's kind of in the background of what the Apostle Paul is talking about in this section of his letter to the Colossians that we're looking at this morning. If you haven't already, turn to Colossians chapter 1. We read uh, chapter 1, verses 24 through chapter 2, verses 5, and we're going to spend the next half hour or so looking a little more closely at those verses. Uh, if, if you want to use the Bible that's under the seat right in front of you, it's on page 1168 and 1169, or we could all pause for a moment while you shout, hey Siri, look up Colossians 1 for me and see if that works. Now we're in the fifth sermon in this series looking at the book of Colossians, the series we're calling Glorious, because over and over again, we find throughout Colossians, Paul talking about the glory of Christ, the glory of new creation, Christ in us, the hope of glory, and we'll continue on through the next couple of chapters, chapter two and three, over the next month or so. But in this fifth sermon, we're actually only now getting to the end of the introduction of Paul, of Paul introducing himself to the believers at Colossae. It's taken us five weeks and an entire chapter of the letter for Paul to finish introducing himself. <clears throat> Which is odd, though, if you think about it um, and dig into the history behind this book a little bit more, I realize Paul had never met the church at Colossae. He'd never been there. Uh, these were people who did not know him personally. They knew him by reputation. And they knew him from a distance. Paul had sent Epaphras to Colossae to establish this church. And so Colossae and Laodicea and Hierapolis, these three towns that are within a few miles of each other in the Lycus River Valley in western Turkey, uh, have, have each grown up a, a kind of a house church or a network of house churches within those towns. Paul has not seen them in the flesh, but he has heard of them, a report back from Epaphras, and then wants to write to them to encourage them and also to get across some teaching he thinks they need to know. Now, he was probably in prison in Ephesus when he wrote this letter, so it was difficult for him to come to them personally, so a letter uh, had to suffice. But since they didn't know him, he spends this entire first chapter plus a few verses laying out his credentials, as it were. In fact, if you were to skim back through this, you'd see how he, he identifies himself quickly and then gives a sort of a full explanation of how he's been praying for this church and prays for them in writing. And as he prays for them, then he goes into this glorious explanation of who Jesus is, which Pastor Jeff preached on last week, before coming back to his own calling as a minister of the gospel and a minister of the church, which gives him the credibility, the credentials that he needs to then go into a couple of chapters worth of, hey, here's how your Christianity works itself out in your everyday life. So in these 11 verses that we're looking at this morning, we're watching as Paul gives his final credentials and builds that credibility he needs to then shift into the passages we're going to consider over the next month or so. 
As a minister or a servant of the gospel, which he calls a mystery in this text, uh, we read that he has made it his mission to proclaim Jesus to the churches so that he can have some small part in their coming to maturity in Christ. You may have caught that alliteration, mystery, mission, and maturity. That's the outline as we go through the passage this morning. Uh, mystery, mission, and maturity. Now, we're going to jump around a little bit within these 11 verses as we consider these three ideas in in their logical order, not necessarily in the order that Paul lays them out in the text. So you'll have to stick with me, but we're going to start with mystery because it's on the basis of the mystery that God has now revealed that Paul conceives of his mission and then strives to bring the church to maturity. So let's start with mystery, which begins at the end of verse 24. Paul says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church of which I became a minister, according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery, hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed in his saints. The mystery, the secret, the secret sauce, the secret formula. Paul's writing to this church and introducing himself as a minister or a servant of the gospel, which we'll get into a little bit later in the sermon. But he says he's a minister, a servant of this mystery, which, as it turns out, is a bit of an older Jewish idea that he's tapping into. Ancient Jewish seers throughout history had spoken of the secret plans that God had to restore the fortunes of the Jewish people. There was a secret way known only to God that he was going to reveal in the last days. So you knew you were in the last days if the secret plan of God was being revealed. His plan was a mystery. It was hidden for ages and generations. It's basically a poetic way of saying since the beginning of time, this mystery has been hidden, but God would now reveal it on the last day. Uh, Even Jesus used this kind of language. Over and over in the Gospels, he talks about the secrets or the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, the secret of the last day. But when Paul reads this idea of mystery and he reads it through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, he's no longer talking about a mystery kind of in the sense of the way we would tend to use the word, like a puzzle uh, or a conundrum, or a riddle that needs to be figured out. You know, some, some body of knowledge of which just that last key element is missing, and if we could figure out what the key element is, then the rest of it would all make sense. He's referring to a mystery kind of in the same way we talk about a mystery novel. I don't know, are any of you fans of mystery novels? Yeah, a few people. I've, I've got a few on my desk at home. What strikes me as, as fascinating about the idea of the mystery novel is that both the puzzle and the solution are in the same place. If you think about it, they're both in the book. It's just that the solution is separated from the puzzle by a number of pages. Right? If you, you start at the beginning, you get the, the mystery, the, the puzzle. What, what are we trying to solve? What's the crime? What's the riddle? Uh, what's the, the missing information I need? But if you just keep reading, you just keep going through those pages, you'll get to the solution. You'll find the answer to the mystery. Unless you're my wife who reads about 15 pages, gets so stressed out by all the conflict that she jumps to the end and reads the last chapter to find out how it all resolves and then goes back to the beginning to read the book through in light of the ending which is blasphemy, (laughs) or at least 
that's what I think, but Paul would probably disagree with me because that's what he's encouraging us to do in this passage, to read back through the Word of God, what, he, what we call the Old Testament, to read back through the Old Testament in light of the mystery that has been revealed, that was once hidden and now has been revealed to the saints. So when Paul refers to a mystery... God's secret plan, he interprets it in light of Jesus' death and resurrection and says, as we go through this passage, the mystery was once hidden, now it's revealed. The mystery is Jesus. He's the secret solution to the puzzle of how God is going to redeem to himself a humanity that has wandered away from him. Jesus is the secret answer to what will set the world to rights. Jesus is the key missing piece of information that finally makes all the rest of Scripture make sense. When Paul says, there's a mystery now revealed, and it's Christ, he's telling us that what what the saints of old only glimpsed in part, we can now understand in whole through the lens of Jesus, that anything God has done and is doing and will do in the future now must be said through what he has accomplished in Christ on the cross. See, for Paul, the mystery, the secret, the what's the thing that's going to get me from where I am to where I feel in my bones I'm supposed to be is not a secret formula. It's not some hidden knowledge that we have to mine out for ourselves. It's not a timetable of events or a formula of prayers that will make something happen. The mystery is Jesus. The secret is Christ. Look again at verses 26 and 27. He says he's called to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. If you follow the line of thought all the way through from from way back in verse 23 up to verse 27, 28, Paul is saying that the gospel message is the word of God which is the mystery, which is Christ in you. And if we go ahead a few more verses, which is Christ. The gospel is the word of God, is the mystery, is Christ in you, is Christ. God's secret plan to restore the fortunes of the Jewish people, to end the tyranny of sin upon the world, to make all sad things come untrue. Paul tells us it's Jesus. That's the mystery. When I was in high school, my brother and I and our youth pastor went on a road trip from Iowa all the way down to Texas where supposedly there was a dinosaur footprint with a human footprint right in the middle. Um, I don't remember anything really at all about the trip or that particular thing that we were looking at, and I'm not really commenting on any of that other than the people that we encountered at this place were a little odd. 
I was talking to a guy, and he was, he was telling me, boy, isn't it just fascinating to really study the Bible? And, and I, high school, I was, uh, had just kind of recently come back to faith in Christ. I was excited to study the Bible. He said, boy, and when you start getting into the Bible codes, and you start realizing if you count every 26th letter in Hebrew and line them up, and the secret messages that come through, when you rearrange all the letters, what I heard to say what you wanted to say. So when you rearrange it all and you really find the secret to the Bible, boy, then it really comes alive. That's the wrong secret. That's the wrong mystery. It's right here. Paul tells us, you want to know what the secret is? It's Jesus. Look, if you have to rearrange the Hebrew and like pick every 27th letter or something like that in order to find the secret, it's the wrong secret. It's the wrong message. The mystery is no longer hidden for us to use uh, advanced data mining techniques to find out. The secret has been told. It is Jesus. That's the mystery. That's the mystery revealed. That's the the information that had been hidden for the first 95% of the story and now is revealed on the last few pages of the novel. It's Jesus. He's the secret. He's the mystery. He's... He's the solution. He's God's secret plan for making the world right again. And as Paul describes this mystery, you can tell that it has emotionally affected him because the way he writes is not simply a didactic explanation of, here's the mystery, it is the gospel, it is Christ in you, memorize these four things, you will be fine. He can't not overflow with effusive praise of the riches of the glory and the majesty of the wisdom and knowledge that you find in Jesus. The way he, he piles on these adjectives shows us how emotionally Paul understands this realization that, that the thing he had been searching for his entire life is Jesus. Paul sees, and we'll talk about this a little bit more later, but this, the riches, the treasure, the glory, the greatness of Christ in us is not just a fact. It is the hope, the hope by which we live, the hope of glory, the hope that one day we will spend eternity in full and final communion with God, something we strive for now but can never fully realize we will one day fully come to understand and and experience as we see God and we see Jesus face to face. So is it any wonder that Paul makes the declaration, the proclamation of that mystery, the mission of his life? You can see why we have taken these topics in their logical order, not necessarily the order in which he uh, is presenting himself to the Colossian believers because it's this foundational message, this mystery of Christ in us, Christ for us, the hope of glory that fuels Paul's sense of mission, his sense of vocation, why he exists in this world and what he is called to do. The mystery is Christ in us and Christ for us. The mission is to proclaim that good news as far and as wide and as thoroughly as possible. Let's move to this idea of mission. It comes through more clearly in verse 25, verses 28 and 29, but to get kind of a running start at it, I'm going to begin reading again at the beginning of verse 24. Paul sees as part of his mission this sense of suffering, which I'll explain a little bit more in a moment, but verse 24 
he says, now I can rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church of which I became a minister, according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. And there's an interesting parallel in verse 25 that echoes something that Paul said in verse 23, which is part of the text Pastor Jeff covered last week, but I'm going to dip back into it and steal a little bit of it. Back in verse 23, Paul tells the Colossian believers not to shift away from the hope of the gospel that you had heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, he says, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. And then in verse 24, he uses the same language, talking about Jesus' body on whose behalf he suffers, that is, the church of which I became a minister. As Paul has gone through this introduction of himself to the Colossian church, because remember, he has not met them in the flesh. They don't know him. He first claims his credentials as a minister of the gospel, and then shifts and says, because I'm a minister of the gospel, I'm a minister of the church. Now, when we read the word minister uh, in the ESV translation, um, it's easy to think of an official title or a position, right? Like the minister of defense or the minister of transportation, the minister of health or the minister of magic or something British like that, right? As an official role with certain authority. Paul is not using the word minister in that sense. He's using the word in sort of its root sense of somebody minus or a thing minus, the one serving underneath something that is greater and more important than they are. When Paul says he's a minister of the gospel and a minister of the church, he doesn't, he's not saying, I'm one of the officials that determines this. He's saying, I'm one of the servants that is obligated to this. He's a, he's a minister, not in the ordained clergy sense, but in the someone serving under an authority sense. He's a servant under the gospel, a servant of the church, a role which came to him from God. He says in verse 25, he became a minister or a servant. When I say minister, just hear the word servant. He became a servant of the church according to the stewardship from God that was given to him. In other words, in God's kind of divine order of how he wanted the gospel to initially be spread around the world, he, he said, I'm choosing Paul, I'm making you a minister. I'm making you a servant of the gospel, and so a servant to the churches, and entrusted him with the responsibility of serving the churches, especially in the kind of the area of Asia Minor. So Paul's responsibility, his mission, was given to him by God for the sake of the saints, he says in verse 25. He says, given to me for you, for your sake, For the reason or the purpose to make the word of God fully known. Now, if you have another translation in front of you, uh, particularly the NIV, uh, you'll notice it translates the phrase to make the word of God fully known kind of differently. Uh, More like to present to you the word of God in all its fullness. And that's because Paul is using a really interesting Greek word here that can mean fulfill or complete, but it gets... It's shade of fulfillment, it's shade of meaning from the thing that is being fulfilled or the thing that is being completed. We use the word in the same way. To fulfill a promise is to do something you said you would do. To fulfill a role is to perform an activity or execute a skill up to a certain level as required 
for you by someone else. Uh, To fulfill a need is to negate a deficiency in circumstances in someone else by your own abundance in your circumstances. To fulfill a dream is to do whatever it takes to bring about a state of affairs that most closely resembles some hoped-for future. You see, in in each case, how we use the word fulfill depends mostly on what we're trying to fulfill. So when Paul says here, literally in the Greek, I'm called to fulfill the word of God, we ask ourselves, well, what does that mean? To fulfill the word of God, does that mean he's supposed to obey the whole thing? Probably not, or he wouldn't use it as the basis of his calling to proclaim Jesus. Uh, We could understand it the way the NIV translates it, to present to you the word of God in its fullness, but then we, we start to think that fulfilling the word of God means coming up with a comprehensive teaching system, a, a, a curriculum that you can move a person through the whole counsel of God, uh, you know, so that every major and minor doctrine is thoroughly covered. The responsibility then is on the teacher to, to cover the content, to get through the material and get it all out there. I, I need to fulfill the entirety of the Word of God. Or alternatively, the, the ESV translates it, make the Word of God fully known, which seems to imply the responsibility is more on the listener than on the speaker, that, yeah, the speaker needs to go through the whole counsel of God, but it's, it's on you all now to make sure that you're really taking this to heart, that you're really getting it, that it's not just known in you, but fully known by you. Other translations, of course, they just don't try to interpret it for us at all, and they, they just say Paul's calling is to complete the Word of God, just Helpful, at least it leaves it open for us to interpret. Now, the, the reason I'm spending this much time kind of breaking down just one phrase and the translation issues is because it's easy for us to import into this phrase our own understanding of Scripture as, because we all have our own copy of it, as sort of a static thing, a book that sits on a shelf like any other textbook, uh, full of information that we need to somehow get into our heads. And maybe if we get enough of it into our heads, it will somehow get down into our hearts. And if it gets into our hearts, it will spread out to our limbs and we'll start doing uh, the right things. But primarily it's seen didactically. Get this info in me. Except Paul never talks about the word of God that way. For Paul, the word of God is not a static thing. It is a dynamic power. One commentator puts it this way. He says that Paul always treats the word of God as a power let loose in the world. A power that's embodied in the true gospel message. Paul's calling is to allow the word of God to have its full effect. When Paul says his calling is to fulfill the word of God, he's not so much saying he's called to teach it or proclaim it as as much as to unleash it in all of its potency upon the world. He, he, he doesn't see himself so much as a zookeeper who is tasked with keeping the animals in and explaining everything there is to know about them. Paul is the guy running around letting the animals loose. He's saying, I, I can fulfill your potential. As soon as I open this door, you can be you to the wild animals in the zoo. That's what Paul sees himself as, sees his calling as with the word of God, to let it loose, to release it upon the world. A power which comes in the message of the gospel. So uh, if I were paraphrasing this passage, I might 
paraphrase Paul to be saying, I, I became a minister, I became a servant of the church according to the plan of God given to me for your sake and so that I could unleash the word of God with all its potency on you. Paul's mission, his understanding of his own mission is to continue the revealing of the mystery of God to the world, to unleash the mystery along, uh, upon the, word, the world. He explains a little bit more how he does that in verses 28 and 29. Him, notice, not it. He doesn't say it, the word of God we proclaim. He says him, Jesus, the power behind the word of God, the power in the word of God, the power of the word of God, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone, sort of the negative teaching and positive teaching, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. He says, for this I I toil, struggling with all his energy, God's energy, that he powerfully works within me. Within Paul's sense of his own mission and vocation is his obligation to unleash the word of God upon the world by proclaiming Jesus, to unleash the power of Christ on the world by warning people against the good news that leaves out Jesus or adds additional requirements onto him, and and by teaching people the true good news of the mystery of God, of Christ in us, of Christ for us, the hope of glory. It's for the sake of this mission that Paul references in verses 24, 29, chapter 2, verse 1, his struggle, his suffering, his toil on their behalf. See, Paul, as, as an apostle, as someone who's uniquely chosen for that role, he doesn't hold the proclamation of Christ as his highest priority, but as his only priority. As an apostle, Paul is called uniquely to something that that not even we today as individuals, but as a church are called to, to make the proclamation of Christ, he made the proclamation of Christ his sole and his only and his central priority. And in that mission, saw as part of his unique role the sufferings that he underwent. Remember, as he's writing this letter from prison, he saw these sufferings as a part of his calling. Perhaps we get this flavor from some of his other letters as the way he identifies with Christ in his sufferings. It's kind of what he's saying in verse 24. uh, Just as salvation was bought with the price of Christ's suffering and death, Paul feels that it's his obligation to to purchase their maturity, their growth, their teaching through his own suffering on their behalf, through the the trials and the toils that that he struggles through in order to bring, to unleash the word of God on them. He starts with the mystery, the, the proclamation of Christ in us, a secret, hidden, and now revealed. And from that mystery, he perceives his mission to proclaim not that truth necessarily as to proclaim Jesus, to proclaim Christ. And that mission then is to bring the church to maturity. 
from a mystery to a mission to maturity. Now, the responsibility uh, comes through Paul to the, the believers he's talking to. And as we move into this third part of this sermon, maturity, now we move into application. Uh, so what? What do we do with this passage? What difference does verses 24 through 29 make in our lives? As we consider application for ourselves, we're going to first look at verses 1 through 5 of chapter 2 and see what application Paul lays out for the church there. Uh, And then consider how it might apply to us today. And so as we look at these first five verses, glance one more time just up one verse or up two verses to verse 28. Paul lays out how he accomplishes his mission very clearly. Him we proclaim, Jesus we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. And the goal that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Now, we know from Paul's other letters, uh, most clearly in Ephesians 5, that, that Jesus' purpose for the church, that Jesus loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, the church, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Christ's mission for the church is to sanctify her and present her to himself because this is Christ's purpose for the church. Uh, Paul takes that on as part of his mission to be in some small way part of presenting the church to Christ mature, complete. So his mission is to struggle on behalf of the church to make that maturity happen or to encourage that maturity to happen. Not an easy mission which is why he references multiple times his toiling and his struggle. Look at verse 29. For this purpose, presenting everyone mature in Christ, for this purpose I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works in me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. And then in the verses that follow, he gives specific examples of what the maturity he's struggling for looks like. Hearts encouraged, a unity together in love, an understanding of the riches of full assurance, a sense of of an apprehension of the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, A, a resistance to what he calls plausible arguments, that is, versions of Christianity that are near enough to the truth to be acceptable and yet far enough away to be devastating to the people in the congregations that adopt them. And finally, in verse 5, uh, good order and firmness of faith. Good order here meaning something like morale, uh, like a, a hopefulness that comes from a sure sense of who we are in Christ. Remember, this this letter is one written to a young church, a church that is young in its faith. Uh, So Paul gives some very basic instructions with some very basic goals, or at least instruction and goals that are uh, simple in the way they are argued, uh, but profoundly difficult to live out in any sense of fullness. 
But even as we look at these basic goals, we have to look around at faith and ask ourselves, do we see these things? Do we see hearts encouraged? Do we see a a unity knit together in love? Do we experience as a church a full assurance and understanding of the mystery of God, which is Christ, Christ for us and Christ in us? Do we have a firmness of faith and a hopefulness in the future because of our God? Now, of course, anytime we talk about application for the whole church, it's easy to think, well, that's the responsibility of the whole church, which means it's somebody else's responsibility. Uh, But it's not. It, It trickles down to us, too, as individuals, me as much as anyone else. We as individuals have to ask ourselves, am I firm and hopeful in the faith? Am I mining the riches of the knowledge and wisdom of God in Christ? Am I personally fighting for the unity of the church knit together in love? Am I encouraging one another with the glory of God's goodness to us in Christ? So this is where we move from Paul's big picture application for the church at Colossae and the church as a whole Uh, An application which, by the way, he will expand in further detail in the next couple of chapters and which we will uh, walk through over the next month or so. We move from that big picture application down into the details for us. So taking our outline again of mystery, mission, and maturity, let's, uh, let's think those things through applicationally but in reverse order, just for fun. Maturity. Do we personally, do I as an individual, this is the question to ask yourself, do I as an individual see my life as an exercise of coming to maturity in Christ? It's easy for us in this world of specialization to uh, take our sense of ourselves as a person, break it up into little chunks, and then go see the expert that we need for that particular part. If I'm feeling socially and emotionally immature, I'll go see a therapist. Help me out with this. If I'm feeling physically immature or unhealthy, I'll go see a doctor or an exercise coach in order to grow in that area. If I am financially immature, I'm going to go see a financial advisor. Help me in this area. And if I am spiritually immature, which I don't really know how to define, but basically when none of the others work, and I feel spiritually immature, then I'll go to a pastor or to scripture. Jesus, help me. For Paul, maturity in Christ is not one separate part of ourselves for which we appeal to one particular kind of expertise. Maturity in Christ is the whole of ourselves. It is the foundation for maturity anywhere else. You you cannot become truly mature in any of these other areas without growing in your maturity in Christ. We can't separate who we are spiritually from who we are holistically. And Paul sees this maturity, this whole person maturity, as both inevitable and universal. Three times in verse 28, he uses the word everyone. Everyone meaning everyone. He's saying there's nothing essential to know in Christ that is hidden from anyone who knows Christ. What I mean by that is you don't have to hit a certain intellectual level in order to understand and appreciate all that is essential to knowing Christ. 
And yet, at the same time, knowing Christ, we can tell by the way he continues to say, if you just keep going deeper, you will find more and more. Knowing Christ will stretch uh, the very best and most capable among us to the limits of their understanding and beyond. All are called to mature, and all are called to mature. We, we don't get out of it. C.S. Lewis says in Mere Christianity, we are all like eggs at present, and you cannot indefinitely go on being just an ordinary egg. We must be hatched or go bad. Maturity is required and inevitable. That's why he's struggling to put this in words, to send this letter to church, to pray on their behalf. So are we growing? Do we see ourselves and the entirety of our lives, not just the quote-unquote spiritual part of it, but the entirety of our lives to be an exercise in growing in maturity in Christ? Second, consider the mission. Paul saw his mission, his vocation as the practical, on-the-ground outworking of God's purpose for the church and for the world to make the gospel known, to make Jesus known. So what is our mission? What is your mission? I'm not calling all of us, maybe not even any of us, to have a Paul-like zeal and laser-like focus on the proclamation of the gospel in words. The application of this sermon is not quit your job and become a missionary. Maybe it is for you individually, but I know it is not for all of us as a whole because Paul has a very unique calling as an apostle to have as his only priority the proclamation of the word of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our calling is to proclaim the gospel in words, yes. It's not our only calling. We're also called to live out the gospel in our actions in the quiet simplicity of our days, our jobs, the vocations God has called us to, in our long struggles against temptation, in the patience we need for struggling with lifelong illnesses, in the courage to face the tragic situations that come up, within the agonizing anxieties of just being faithful to our families and to our churches, within the constant doubts and uncertainties which accompany obedience to the faith, within all the thousand natural shocks that flesh is heir to, we are called to, be, to faithfully proclaim the gospel with our words, with our actions, to know Christ in the good times and to know him in our sufferings and to make him known. That's our mission. But our growth and maturity and our sense of calling to a vocation, to a mission, cannot come without a, a robust apprehension of the mystery that undergirds it all. It becomes clear as we read this passage that for Paul, the mystery of Christ for us and Christ in us is the center and the central motivating force of his life. As I said, he just can't help but pile on all the adjectives of value to somehow try to describe the richness of what he is getting across in proclaiming Christ, which causes us to ask, well, how do we see the gospel? The good news of forgiveness, reconciliation, and adoption as God's firstborn sons and daughters in Christ. 
would we use the same words that Paul does to describe our own personal understanding of and interaction with the gospel? Is it for us the deepest riches of which we continually come back to in awe every time, seeing something new that, that drives us into deeper worship of God, something inexhaustible, something wonderful to behold? Or, or is it for us simply the secret formula that we apply to get us something that we want even more? I just finished reading uh, a book I grabbed um, on a whim from the library. I saw it out on display, and I'd heard the author interviewed on Fresh Air. Uh, the book is called Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies I've Loved by Kate Bowler. She is a religion professor at Duke Divinity School and a recognized expert on the prosperity gospel. Uh, her area of thesis and publication and research is on the history of the prosperity gospel in America. She, she's a believer. She's a follower of Christ. Uh, and, but she, she has spent her academic career uh, researching the theology that says because we believe in God, because we have assented to the gospel, now he is obligated to give us health and wealth and happiness. After all, what good father does not give good gifts to his children? And while she herself is not a proponent of the prosperity gospel, uh, when she was diagnosed with stage 4 cancer at age 35, uh, she began to realize how much of prosperity thinking had, had leaked into her belief in Christ, not from being around it necessarily so much as from simply being alive in America right now. The book is a memoir of sorts of her struggle with cancer, uh, which will never be healed. And so in it, she is thinking about death, about how her husband and her son will go on without her, uh, what does God owe her in this, and she analyzes in ways that, that hit me to the core how much she and we un, unknowingly and unintentionally adopt this idea that, God, I have trusted your son, why are you doing these things to me? You owe me better than this. Because... In the world we live in, which has an absolute belief in our unfettered and unrestricted potential to improve ourselves, it is impossible for us to conceive of a God who is not all about our own self-actualization, a God who is for us being the best us we can possibly be. And if we're not careful, we'll begin to see the gospel as the way we get right with God and the foundation for then how God makes everything right for us. When the guy who wrote this letter was languishing in prison, not because of anything wrong he had, did, he had done, but simply because he was proclaiming Christ, Christ for us and Christ in us. If anyone could say, uh, God, this doesn't seem fair, and yet what he says is, I am suffering along with Jesus on your behalf. God doesn't owe me anything more than simply to use me to proclaim Christ. The point I'm trying to make here is that our forgiveness of sin, our reconciliation with God, our adoption as his firstborn sons and daughters, that's the good news. 
that is not the doorway to better news. That is the good news. There is no more good news than that. That is not the way we get into God's favor so that he can then give us more favor. That is his favor on us. Everything else that comes after that is simply an outworking of what God has already done for us and in us through redemption in Christ. And none of it is required. It's all grace. None of it is owed to us. It's all grace. The good news, the hope of glory, is Christ for us and Christ in us, not Christ giving us what we want. Is the gospel, is the gospel itself good news for you? Is the gospel itself enough for you? Or is the gospel simply the front door to all of God's riches, material riches, existential riches, the stuff he can, gives us that he can give us that makes us feel good about ourselves? Is Christ in you your hope of glory? Or is God on your side your hope of glory? That's the application for us today as we read through this introduction of Paul to the church at Colossae. He says, hey, I'm a minister, I'm a servant of the gospel, so I'm a servant of the church. I'm a servant of your church. I've been praying for you. I've been praying with you. I've been praying with Epaphras. I've been praying for you to come to maturity in Christ. And now if you'll bear with me, let me write a few things to explain what that maturity looks like and how you get there. But I want you to know, Paul is saying, there is nothing greater, there is nothing more glorious than Christ for you and Christ in you. That's the hope of glory. It's a mystery that's been hidden for ages and is only now being revealed to the saints. And by saints, I don't mean just the good ones. I mean all of God's people. It is now being revealed to us that Christ is the secret, the solution, the formula. No, none of those things. Christ is the person at the center of God's plan to rescue you. Isn't that glorious? Father, you have given us riches beyond imagining in Christ, riches of which we are not worthy, and we fall before you, and we, we say, I don't, I don't know why you chose me. I don't know why you chose us. We don't deserve it any more than anyone else, and yet you've chosen us. God, we ask that you would reveal to us in ever- deepening glimpses of riches, the wisdom and the knowledge of Christ in us. That we may grow to maturity and be presented by Christ in front of Jesus, holy and blameless without blemish or spot, that we may be grown up in him and in you as individuals, and as a church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.